Welcome to this event, Breck the Poet Now, and a huge thanks to the Arts Council for the Lebri Poetry Festival. Enjoy. Oh, show us the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For we must find the next whiskey bar. For if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die. This is our fourth presentation of Brecht's poetry and our third different slant and emphasis. Our general heading throughout has been Brecht the Poet Now. Translating him, David and I understood him more and more urgently as a poet of our times. And it's a measure of his abundance that we could have presented him in that light with poems from each distinct period of his life. His growing up and beginning to write during the First World War his making a name for himself as poet and dramatist during the early years of the Weimar Republic, his years of exile, his return to a homeland in ruins, his final years during the worsening Cold War. This evening, we've chosen to concentrate on the period 1929 to 39, that is, the final years of the short-lived Weimar Republic, the Nazi seizure of power, Brecht and his family in exile, the outbreak of the Second World War. And we want to show Brecht as, by 1929, a poet committed to a left-wing, indeed Marxist, politics and deploying his art in the service of that cause. We shall examine what his engagement entailed. In seeking to persuade his fellow citizens to say no to National Socialism, he had to face up to the fact that in very large numbers, those citizens were saying yes. So we see him in his poetry, and drama too, of course, seeking to rid them of that false consciousness, to open their eyes to the truth of what they were heading towards with Hitler. By 1929, aged 31, Brecht was well known, not to say notorious, in Germany, both for his plays, he won the prestigious Kleist Prize in 1922 for his first three plays, and also for his poetry, especially his scandalous first collection, The Domestic Breviary. The war, ending in 1918, continued in Germany as a violent revolution and bloody repression. Brecht, in Augsburg and Munich, 
was a close observer of these events and was touched by them. The murdered socialist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, for example, stayed with him throughout his life as icons. But what he chiefly felt towards the times was a profound cynicism. Christian and humane values seemed to him and to many of his generation to have choked to death in mud and poison gas. He inhabited the post-war, post-Nietzschean era of the demolition of all values, and on that tabula rasa wrote his own, anarchic hedonism. The hero of his first play, Baal, is the lasting embodiment of that way of being in the world. There were early and continual markers of Brecht's future allegiances, but it was not until he moved to Berlin in September 1924 and saw up close how things were in the jungle of the modern city that he began to take sides and to write accordingly. In the summer of 1926, wanting a theatre capable of showing how and with what effects capitalism works, he had begun to study the Chicago wheat market and having consulted an expert on it, came to the conclusion that, except from the point of view of a handful of speculators, it was a total swamp. He gave up the play, he says, and began to read Marx. Years later, 1935, in exile, he looked back on that turning point. When, years ago, studying the workings of the Chicago wheat market, I suddenly understood how they managed the world's cereal there, and at the same time did not understand it and laid the book down, I knew immediately, you've got yourself into an evil business. I felt no embitterment, and it wasn't the injustice that shocked me, but the thought, what they're doing there is intolerable, filled me entirely. These people, I realised, lived by the damage they did to others and not by doing good. This was a situation that could only be upheld by crime, since for most it was too detrimental. And so, every achievement of reason, every invention or discovery will lead only to yet greater misery. These and similar things I thought at that moment, far from rage or lamentation, when I laid down the book in which were described the wheat market and the stock exchange of Chicago. Much effort and trouble awaited me. In Ken Loach's film, The Spirit of 45, one of the working men he interviewed said he had never read anything or never anything that affected him until one day he read Robert Tressel's The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. Then, as was said of blinded Saul becoming St Paul, immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith. And he asked for the first time, who is this system for? Who benefits from it? Brecht, likewise, studying the workings of the Chicago wheat market, learned something, saw something clearly. Oh, show us the way to the next pretty girl. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. 
For we must find the next pretty girl For if we don't find the next pretty girl I tell you we must die I tell you we must die I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die of that song is a translation by Brecht's close friend and co-worker Elizabeth Hauptmann of a poem he wrote in 1925, or more exactly, it is her own composition in comical primitive English out of Brecht's German. First published in his domestic breviary, it became well known and achieved its full force when Kurt Weill set it for the opera Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni in 1929. That work, as well as a threepenny opera and happy end, made Brecht and Weil rich and famous. More importantly, in a most peculiar dialectic of mellifluous tunes and sardonic, bitter, or downright savage texts, they produced an art form very well suited to Berlin and its own roaring twenties between hyperinflation and the crash of the markets. Brecht worked effectively with more severe composers too, but in the last years of the Weimar democracy, he and Weil together achieved something that is lastingly apt and disturbing. Here are two songs, the first from Happy End, picking up a tune from the Threepenny Opera, 
and the second written for that opera and for Mahagoni. So the happy end has happened. You're my friend and I'm your friend. Once the money is safely trousered, mostly there's a happy end. Don't go fishing in troubled waters. Fred warns Bob and Bob warns Fred. But they finish best of buddies feeding on the poor man's bread. For there's some who are in darkness and there's others in the light and we see those in the light, sir. Those in darkness are out of sight. As I dressed for my wedding, my mother stood by me. He'll tell you you are his now and his alone, said she. That's all they ever want to hear. Be mine forevermore. And then they take you for what you've got to give. And they say, that's no way to live. And knock at another woman's door. The bed that you make you must lie on no one will tuck you up in it but you so let him be the kicked and you the kicker if and when it is kicking it comes to the Kicked and you are the kicker. If and when it is kicking, it comes to I knew within a twelve month what she meant by those words of hers. One of you will be laughing, and the other will be in tears. Treat me nice. They all say that. But what really matters is, who ends up boss? Take my word for it, child. It's either or, him or you, profit or loss. You rule him or be ruled. Ich bitte, so 
learning. A particularly drastic lesson was given him on May Day 1929, when from the balcony of his friend Fritz Sternberg's flat, he watched the Social Democratic Government's police shoot 31 demonstrators dead. Sternberg recalled, as far as we could see, these people were not armed. The police opened fire several times. At first we thought they were warning shots. Then we saw a number of demonstrators collapsing and being carried away later on stretchers. When Brecht heard the shots and saw that people were being hit, he turned white in the face in a way that I'd never seen him before in my life. I think it was not least this experience that drove him ever more strongly towards the communists. I have heard you won't learn, from which I assume you must be millionaires. Your future is assured. It lies before you in the light. Your parents have seen to it that at no time will you dash your foot against a stone. Therefore, you've no need to learn. Just as you are, so you can stay. And even if there should be difficulties, the times, so I am told, being uncertain, you have your leaders who will tell you exactly what you must do to prosper. They have read the writings of those who know the truths that are valid for all times and the remedies that will always help. Having so many on your side, you don't need to lift a finger. Of course, if things were otherwise, you would need to learn. By 1930-31, Brecht the dramatist had begun publicly to commit himself to the radical revolutionary opposition. And in plays such as The Measures Taken, The Yes-Sayer, The No-Sayer, he inquired very scrupulously into the nature and harsh consequences of that commitment. These are the so-called Lehrstücke, the learning plays. Their intention was not that a passive audience should be taught something, but that the writer, the actors, indeed everyone involved in the production as well as the audience, should by a collaborative endeavour learn. Brecht, for all his often violent individualism, worked from the mid-1920s with others, collectively, needing and using their knowledge, opinions, counter-arguments. He believed, like William Blake, that without contraries is no progression. In the workroom, around the table, he was primus inter pares, first among equals, and his co-workers were named with him in the publication. So his way of working 
accords with his politics. Brecht was further, and we might say more precisely, radicalised by his meeting with Margareta Steffen in October 1931. She was 23, 10 years younger than him, from a poor district of Berlin, an activist in the world of communist music, poetry and theatre, daughter of a seamstress and a builder, and already suffering from the TB, the disease of those who are poorly housed, that would kill her 10 years later. She and her friends had heard of Brecht, of course, but his origins, a wealthy bourgeois family, and the great popular and lucrative success of his Thrupney opera had seemed to them more than a bit dubious. And they were watching with interest how he might develop. He gave Stefan a part in his new play, The Mother. She was soon his lover, collaborator, best critic. Brecht, the self-styled teacher, learned from her. He needed her by him. He wrote, So that she will test and check everything I say, and from now on, correct every line, being schooled in the school of the combatants against oppression. In frail health, but cheerful in the spirit, she has strengthened me, not corruptible, even by me. Often, with a smile, I cross out a line myself, already guessing what she would say about it. After her death, Brecht wrote, My pupil has gone away. My teacher has gone away. The following poem, Spring, with its musical accompaniment, is taken from the film Cooler Vampa of 1931, for which Brecht wrote the script. The title is the name of a district outside Berlin, to which, as things got worse, large numbers of the unemployed and the homeless moved and lived in tents. The song acts as a sort of commentary on two young lovers as they walk together in the woods. Love itself, especially between comrades in the cause, was an answering back. Love poems are a way of protecting and asserting the human in times of inhumanity. Spring is coming. Between the sexes, the game resumes. The lovers find their way to one another. The beloved's gently enclosing hand shocks the girl's breast cold. Her glance seduces him. In a new light, the landscape appears to the lovers in spring. The first flocks of birds are sighted very high. The air is already warm. The days are becoming long and the meadows keep their brightness late. The growth of the trees and grasses in spring is measureless. Fruitful unceasingly is the forest, are the meadows, the fields, and the earth gives birth to the new without heed. 
In October 1929 came the Wall Street crash, doing massive harm not just in America, but also to the national economies of Europe, particularly Germany, which after hyperinflation in 1923 had benefited from American funding. In the remaining three and a half years of the Weimar Republic, the constitution and the proper processes of government were suspended. Chancellor Brüning, more and more often under pressure from the extreme right, ruled by decree. Germany drifted steadily towards the abyss. Politics polarised either side of the weakened social democratic centre. Hitler's National Socialists made great electoral headway. His SA fought the communist Rote Front on the streets. In the winter of 1932, unemployment rose to six million. As always, when the markets crash, some citizens continue to do very nicely. Thank you. Oh, they are the nicest people if you don't disturb them when they are tooth and nail disputing things that don't belong to them. When the poor man's lamb is butchered, mostly two will slit its throat. And the strife between these butchers, sure, the policeman sorts it out. Money has to be made by someone, does it not? Song for the foundation of the National Deposit Bank. <laughs> to a national bank's foundation, none, I think, will raise objection. We need ways of making money if we can't inherit any, <laughs> and shares will better serve that need than the handgun or the blade. Nothing's problematical except the initial capital. <laughs> but lacking that, you will be left with the obvious option, theft. Let's not fuss how we get ours. Where did the other banks get theirs? <laughs> Certainly it came from somewhere, taken from someone, that's for sure. And the poor are always with us. One. I saw a bowl of soup once. It didn't belong to me. The soup was over salty, but that didn't bother me. Two. I saw another bowl of soup once, and nothing wrong with it. Still, I didn't eat it. It wasn't mine to eat. Three. So long as I don't work for them, I don't have any rights. And so long as I do work for them, they own my days and nights. Four. And now that there's no work to do, they're mine, my days and nights. Truth is, I have no right to work, nor right to any rights. And there I was just seventeen, selling love out on the streets. Isn't much I haven't seen. Pretty nasty stuff when the going's tough. Fit to turn you off the game for keeps. After all, I'm not an animal, you know. Just thank Christ the whole thing's quickly over. All the loving 
sing the worry, the fear, where are the tears that float so freely? Where are the snows of yesteryear? With the years, there's no mistaking, it gets easier to do. Up the numbers you are taking It's no life of ease Your emotions freeze If you never grant them what they're due After all, stocks won't last forever Just thank Christ the whole thing's quickly over All the loving, the worry the fear, where are the tears that float so freely? Where are the snows of yesteryear? Even if you learn quite quickly how to sell yourself and smile, selling sex for cash is strictly not a lot of fun. You get it done Though you're getting older All the while After all You can't be 17 forever Just thank Christ The whole thing's quickly over All the loving The worry The fear Where are the tears that float so freely Where are the snows of Article 218 of the Weimar Republic's Constitution declared abortion to be a criminal act with severe penalties. A ballad for Article 218, 1929. Doctor, my period. Well, doesn't it make you glad? You'll be helping the population figures along a bit. Doctor, our place isn't fit. Don't tell me you haven't a bed. Look after yourself a bit and keep yourself nice and warm. You'll make a nice little mother of a bit more factory fodder. That's what your belly is for and that's what you're there to do. You know the score. And whether you like it or no, that's that. You're a mother-to-be. Doctor, a man out of work, he can't have a child, can he? Oh, he'll soon find work now, my dear lady. Doctor, Mrs. Renner, I don't understand you. The state needs men, can't you see, to mind the machinery. You'll make a, you'll make a nice little mother of a bit more factory fodder. That's what your belly is for, and that's what you're there to do. You know the score. And whether you like it or no, that's that. You're a mother-to-be. Doctor, where'll I lie in? 
Mrs. Renner, enough being silly. First you wanted the fun, and now you won't do your duty. When we prohibit a thing, we know very well what we're doing, so leave it all to us, and let us have no more fuss. You'll make a nice little mother of a bit more factory fodder. That's what your belly is for, and that's what you're there to do. You know the score, and whether you like it or no, fact is, you're a mother-to-be. Song of the Soldier's Widow, 1932. When I swore my man fidelity at that time and in that place, I never thought I'd lose sight of him and could forget his face. And when I bore him two children, it never entered my head that man of mine would leave me and go and fight for the Kaiser instead. When I said, I do, and signed the book, that didn't mean that he would go off and fight the Kaiser's foe and I would go hungry. The ones who start a war like that, they want their heads thumping, hard, so that they'll hold in future people in higher regard. Again and again, in poetry and drama, Brecht gave women the voice to speak of their oppression. They learned to answer back. He wrote The Mother in 1932, a piece of anti-metaphysical, materialistic, non-Aristotelian drama, as he <laughs> called it, <laughs> after the novel by Maxim Gorky. The play is set in Russia between 1905 and 1917 and shows the mother, Pelageya Vlasova, gradually committing herself to the revolutionary cause. Here are a speech and a song from that play. In praise of the Vlasovas. This is our comrade Vlasova, the good combatant, diligent, cunning and reliable, reliable in the struggle, cunning against our enemy and diligent as an agitator. Her work is small and the finished thing is tough and indispensable. She is not alone. Wherever she struggles, like her struggle, tough, reliable and cunning, in Tver, Glasgow, Lyon and Chicago, Shanghai and Calcutta, all the Vlasovas of all the lands, good moles, unknown soldiers of the revolution, indispensable. My son, whatever this life may bring, watch out, they're waiting to beat you down. Cause for you, my son, all the world has to give is the rubbish heap, and even that is full. My son, just let your mother tell you the life that awaits you is worse than the pits. But I didn't carry you all those long months so that you'd simply put up with all that shit. What you don't have, you must never give up on. What they won't give you, you just have to take. I am your mother and I didn't have you So you'd end up sleeping out on the streets It may be you've no one so very special I can't give you money, I can't give you
give you prayers, but I'm putting my hope in you and trusting that you'll make the most of life's precious share. When I lie sleepless by your side, I often feel for your little fist. Yes, they're already planning their wars with you. What can I do that you won't hear their filthy lies? Your mother, my son, won't ever deceive you that you're so special or more than you seem. But nor did she make you with so much trouble. So one day you'd hang on the barbed wire and scream. My son, so hold on to your own people so the power of the mighty crumbles to dust. You, my son, and I, and all our class will stand together, so we must. That on this earth of ours we all may be equal and free. That on this earth of ours we all may be equal and free. In the night of the 27th of February 1933, the German Parliament building, the Reichstag, went up in flames. The Nazis, almost certainly the perpetrators, blamed their political opponents. Brecht was in hospital recovering from an operation. His wife, Helena Weigel, came to him on the morning of the 28th and told him they must leave the country at once. They did so, to Prague and then on to Vienna. Their son, Stefan, and daughter, Barbara, were smuggled out after them by friends. Had they not got out, Weigel as a Jew and Brecht as Brecht, and very likely their children also would have been disappeared in the mass arrests that followed the fire. Their exile had begun. It would be 15 years before they saw Berlin again, and then as a city in ruins. Germany had prided itself on being a Rechtsstaat, a state holding to the rule of law. A chief effect of the legal Nazi takeover of government was that the law itself soon became unjust. The law in statute and in practice may sometimes be or may become unjust even in functioning democracies and may then be corrected. But under a tyranny unjust law prevails without let or hindrance. Its agent is terror. After six months of Nazi rule, a democracy had been transformed into a one-party state, its people coordinated, gleichgeschaltet, organised and governed by terror. A manic purism ruled. The state sought cohesion in oneness which meant the exclusion or eradication of all elements deemed to be foreign or harmful or degenerate. People not like us, art, literature and music that was not German. And the nation, all pulling together, began to prosper. Hitler was making Germany great again. Six million unemployed in 1932 
and at the start of the war, towards which the Nazi government had all along been driving, there was a shortage of labour. Mein Kampf, written during a cushy few months in jail after the failed putsch of November 1923, was published in 1925 and had sold about 240,000 copies by the time its author came to power. From that book and vast quantities of like propaganda, any voter could have known what the man intended for his country. This by way of example. The broad mass of a people is not made up of professors or diplomats. Having very little abstract knowledge, they operate more in the world of feeling. It is there that their positive or negative attitudes are formed. But attitudes founded in feeling have an extraordinary stability. Faith is harder to unsettle than knowledge. Love is less liable to change than respect. Hatred is more lasting than dislike. And the motor of all the most powerful revolutions on earth has always lain less in the masses being governed by some scholarly insight than in an inspirational fanaticism, or sometimes in a violently compelling hysteria. Much, perhaps most, of Brecht's writing from the late 1920s till his death, whether he ever read that bit of Mein Kampf or not, is ghosted by the fear that he was facing the defeat of reason and the triumph of unreason and lies. He saw this process personified in Hitler, but against all his hopes had to acknowledge it in Stalin's USSR too. And after the war, though he chose to live in the East, he witnessed it still. Really, he spent most of his life saying no to what was there and yes to what he hoped would come. But that coming depended on the deluded being persuaded to think differently, depended on truth and reason for present argument in times in which, so he feared, the very idea of them and all belief in their necessity were being obliterated. Brecht and his family settled first in Denmark, near Svendborg, on the island of Foon. And from that refuge, the German coast just out of sight behind the islands, he, together with his visitors, Walter Benjamin, for example, and his collaborators, Margarete Steffin, Ruth Berlau, continued the struggle against the scum and their leader, Hitler, whom he referred to derisively as the house painter. He was aware from the start how disadvantaged a regime's opponent is by exile. How can he be sure that the information on which he bases his opposition is correct, or still correct? Events move quickly. Trustworthy news arrives late. And for the writer, largely denied publication, largely cut off from the readers who share his native tongue, exile is perhaps peculiarly dispiriting. Altogether, exile was hard to bear. Many German writers, arriving and settling in a place of safety, still could not survive. Losing effective contact with the native land, feeling redundant in the land that had taken them in, disheartened them. Homesickness itself, missing the home localities, its beauties, your habits, the people there. 
Exile is a place you don't belong in. You lose your belongings, by which is meant more than your possessions. Small wonder that so many exiles commit suicide. On the label, emigrant. <coughs> I always thought the name they gave us wrong. Emigrants. That means people who leave, but we did not emigrate, leaving one country of our own free will and choosing another. Nor did we immigrate into some other country in order to stay, possibly forever. No, we fled. We are the persecuted, the banished. And the land that received us will be no home, but an exile. Restlessly we sit, as near as we can to the borders, awaiting the day of our return, watching every smallest change across the border, eagerly questioning every newcomer, forgetting nothing, relinquishing nothing, and forgiving none of what happened. Forgiving nothing. Oh, the tranquility of the sound cannot deceive us. Even here, we can hear the screams from their camps. After all, we ourselves are almost like rumours of crimes that have slipped out over the border. Every one of us, walking in tattered shoes through the crowd, bears witness to the shame that stains our nation. But not one of us will settle here. The last word has not yet been spoken. Brecht felt a personal hatred for Hitler. He blamed him for the damage done to his life, the material and personal losses, for the narrowing of his life and work into mortal combat with an odious opponent. When Stephen died of exhaustion, malnourishment and tuberculosis, Brecht insisted Hitler killed her. And becoming a foreigner himself, he looked with fellow feeling on others, ancient and modern, who had left home and in a foreign country had been kindly or unkindly received. His free retelling in 1934 of the story of Medea <coughs> speaks truth to his own times, and like so much of his writing on displacement and uneasy settling, to our times as well. There is an old, old story, a thousand years old or more, about a woman called Medea who arrived on a foreign shore. And it was the man who loved her who brought her there. He said, my house and home are yours now, and here you lay your head. The language she spoke was not the same as theirs. For milk and bread and love, their words were not hers. The way she walked was different, and she had different hair. They looked at her askance. She was never at home there. And what became of her is told by Euripides to a bitter end long, long ago in his mighty choruses. Now the wind passes over the rubble of that inhospitable town and over the stones they stoned her with who wasn't one of their own. Now suddenly we hear there are stories going round that once again Medea's 
are being seen in our towns through the trams, the cars, the trains, the hue and cry again in 1934 in this city of ours, Berlin. In Svendborg, uh, Brecht worked at a poetics to serve the struggle that must now be conducted from abroad. A chief text of it, composed in 1938 against the very narrow, narrow definition of realism being advocated by Georg Lukács and others, is the essay Breadth and Variety of Realist Writing. Using the example of Shelley's Mask of Anarchy, that poet's response to the Peterloo Massacre, Brecht insists that a realist is a writer who tells things how they are, whatever his way of going about it. So Shelley, naming names, Foreign Secretary Castlereagh, Lord High Chancellor Eldon, Home Secretary Sidmouth, presents them in an allegorical mask as embodiments of murder, fraud and hypocrisy. Brecht sets out the poem in English, adding after each stanza a literal translation into German done with Margarete Steffin. Here's Shelley. I met murder on the way. He had a mask like Castlereagh. Very smooth he looked, yet grim. Seven bloodhounds followed him. All were fat, and well they might be in admirable plight, for one by one and two by two he tossed them human hearts to chew, which from his wide cloak he drew. Next came fraud, and he had on, like Eldon, an ermine gown. His big tears, for he wept well, turned to millstones as they fell. And the little children, who around his feet played to and fro, thinking every tear a gem, had their brains knocked out by them. Clothed with the Bible as with light, and the shadows of the night, like Sidmouth, next hypocrisy on a crocodile rode by. And many more destructions played in this ghastly masquerade, all disguised even to the eyes, like bishops, lawyers, peers or spies. Last came anarchy. He rode on a white horse, splashed with blood. He was pale, even to the lips, like death in the apocalypse. What happened on St Peter's Field in Manchester on the 16th of August, 1819, was an act of state violence against unarmed demonstrators asking for a minimal improvement in the citizens' right to have a say in the ruin running of their country. The cavalry charged into the crowd using their sabres, killing 18, four of them women, wounding five or six hundred. It has taken two centuries and a film by Mike Lee to bring this atrocity into British public knowledge. Reading Shelley's poem, doubtless Brecht remembered what he had witnessed from Fritz Sternberg's balcony on the 1st of May, 1929. He saw in Red Shelley an exile, a champion of the many against the parasitical few, not just a brother in politics, in the cause, but also a model, not the only one but a good one, of how to go about telling the truth, bringing it home so closely that hearts and minds would be changed and readers would say, enough's enough. Brecht concluded his essay thus, 
We derive our aesthetics and our ethics from the needs of our struggle. You write the truth in whatever way gets it across most effectively. So doing, you can call yourself a realist. As to that aside and our ethics, that exceeds our present context, but does want thinking about. In 1947, back in Germany, in the Eastern Zone, and viewing with dismay the reinstatement of the old order in the West, Brecht wrote a close equivalent of Shelley's Mask of Anarchy, depicting with a mixture of allegory and brutal realism a parade of politicians, clergy, doctors, lawyers, etc., back in their old positions as though nothing much had happened and nothing needed to change. He called the poem Freiheit und Democracy. Here is a sample. These six party members rode in six carriages through the crowd who cried amidst the rubble, we want freedom and democracy. First oppression rode up, his bone hand gripping the knob of a whip in an armoured cart he rode, a token of industry's gratitude. In a rusted tank, applauded loudly, pestilence rode, shamefacedly, like an invalid, tugging up high against the wind his brown necktie. Behind him rode deceit, and he waved a tankard. The beer was free. To swill it, though, and slake your thirst, you must sell him your children first. Old as the hills, stupidity, still active, rode in that company, and as they progressed, kept deceit constantly within his sight. Hanging an arm out, murder made his appearance before the crowd. Monster lolling in his carriage, he sang the sweet dream of liberty. Pillage then brought up the rear, on his lap the terrestrial sphere. He wore a Junker field marshal's regimentals with medals. And all six of these eminences, long established, merciless, all as one, they raised a plea for freedom and democracy. And now a poem not on the subject of, but demonstrating the living practice of productive doubt as a strategy in the continuing attempt to get at and communicate the truth. Note that the work underway in this poem is collaborative. The Doubter. Whenever to us it seemed the answer to a question had been found, one of us loosed the cord on the wall of the old, furled Chinese canvas so that it unrolled and revealed the man on the bench who doubted so deeply. I, he said to us, am the doubter. I doubt whether the work that has consumed your days has been well done, whether what you say, were it less well said, would be worth to anyone whether rather you said it well but perhaps did not attend to the truth of what you said, whether it is not ambiguous, for you are responsible for every possible error, or it may be too unambiguous and remove the contradictions from things. Is it too unambiguous? For if so, what you say is useless. Your thing is lifeless then. 
Are you truly in the flow of things, at one with everything that is becoming? Are you still becoming? Who are you? To whom do you speak? To whom is what you have to say of use? And, by the way, does it leave you clear-headed? Can it be read in the morning? Is it connected to what is already there to hand? Have you made use of the sentences spoken before you, at least to refute them? Is everything verifiable? By experience? By what experience? But above all, always and above all else, how does one act if one believes what you say? Above all, how does one act? Thoughtfully? Curiously, we saw the doubting blue man on the canvas, looked at one another and started once more from the beginning. <laughs> a couple of years later, around 1939, Brecht wrote a poem entitled Praise of Doubt. Its first lines are, Praise be to doubt, take my advice and greet with good cheer and respect the man who tests your word like a bad penny. And at the heart of it comes, oh, that beauteous head-shaking in the face of indisputable truths. But the most beautiful of all doubts is this, when the downtrodden and despondent raise their heads and no longer believe in the might of their oppressors. Brecht countered 1 Corinthians 13.2, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, with an adage of his own. It is not faith, in German Glaube, that might work such a miracle, but Unglaube, disbelief. He wrote, discussing the practice of epic theatre, have we not seen how disbelief may move mountains? Scepticism not being too ready to believe, being rather inclined to disbelieve, especially what those in authority tell you, is an attitude of mind once achieved which makes for good citizenship, for an involved and usefully participating electorate. And, of course, once learned, it cannot be discarded if the rulers begin to find it inconvenient. Praise of Doubt concludes... You, who are a leader of men, do not forget that you have this part because you doubted the leaders. So permit the lead, in turn, to doubt. Brecht in Svendborg developed a poetry whose ways, the irregular rhythms, the lineation, their bodily gesture, would induce an opening of the mind to new possibilities. <clears throat> he had decided views and sought to advance them. But the verse itself in its deepest effect, is not his to command. As always with good poetry, the poem exceeds the poet. We, the readers, induced to think critically, are at liberty to disagree. Brecht's poems take a new look at things from different angles. They work at, as continual acts of estrangement, defamiliarisation. The Romantics cast the modifying colours of the imagination on the world and saw things in its new light. And that, for many of them, was an end in itself. Brecht does the same, but with a purpose, so that eyes will be opened to a world that needs changing. The verse itself is an agent of learning.
beds for the night. I hear that in New York, on the corner of 26th Street and Broadway, a man stands every evening in the winter months and begging passers-by gets a bed for the night for the homeless gathered there. The world is not changed by this. Relations between human beings are not improved. The age of exploitation is not made any shorter. But a few men have a bed for the night. For one night long, they are out of the wind. The snow that was meant for them falls on the streets. You reading this, do not put down the book. A few men have a bed for the night. For one night long, they are out of the wind. The snow that was meant for them falls on the streets. But the world is not changed by this. Relations between human beings are not improved. The age of exploitation is not made any shorter. And here are two poems in the voices of people who have seen the truth. My son, I bought you the jackboots and the brown shirt as well. But if I'd known then what I know now, I would rather have hanged, I would rather have hanged myself. My son, when I saw that hand of yours lifted up in a Hitler salute, I didn't know the hand that salutes the man would dry up like fruit, would dry up like fruit in drought. My son, and I saw you marching away in Hitler's train and didn't know that who goes forth with him will never come back will never come back again. I saw you wearing a brown shirt, never said what I should have said. For I didn't know what I Questions of a worker who reads. Who built the seven gates of Thebes? In books you will find the names of kings. Was it the kings who dragged the stones into place? And Babylon, so often destroyed, who rebuilt it so many times? 
In which of the houses of gold-gleaming Lima did the construction workers live? Where, on that evening when the Chinese wall was finished, did the masons go? The great city of Rome is full of triumphal arches. Who set them up? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? Did Byzantium, so much praised in song, have only palaces for its inhabitants? Even in fabled Atlantis, that night when the ocean engulfed it, the drowning roared out for their slaves. <coughs> Young Alexander conquered India. Was he alone? <laughs> Caesar defeated the Gauls. Did he not have so much as a cook with him? <laughs> Philip of Spain wept when his armada went down. Did no one else weep? Frederick II was victorious in the Seven Years' War. Who else prevailed? On every page of victory, who cooked the victory banquet? Every ten years, a great man. Who paid the bills? So many reports, so many questions. And here, an encouraging example of solidarity and resistance. The invincible inscription. At the time of the World War, in a cell in the Italian prison of San Carlo, full of arrested soldiers, drunkards and thieves, a socialist soldier scratched in crayon on the wall, Viva Lenin! Right high, up high, in the half-light of the cell, hardly visible, but written in huge, bold letters. When the guards saw it, they sent a man with a bucket of whitewash, and with a long-handled brush, he painted over the threatening inscription. But because he simply followed the outline with his whitewash, on the cell wall, it now said, in whitewash, Viva Lenin! <laughs> then a second painter painted the whole thing over with a broad brush, so that for several hours it was gone, but towards morning, when the whitewash dried, the inscription re-emerged. Viva Lenin! Whereupon the guards sent a builder with a chisel against the inscription, and he laboured for an hour, scratching the letters out one by one. <laughs> and when he was done, high up on the cell wall, in no colour now, but scratched deep into the wall, the invincible inscription, Viva Lenin! Now remove the wall, said the soldier. <laughs> Brecht in these years wrote many poems of solidarity and of love for comrades in the struggle. And here are two now for Ruth Berlau. The sky above me on that not-to-be-forgotten night was bright enough. The chair on which I sat was easy enough. The conversation was light enough. The drink was sharp enough. Soft enough was your arm, girl, on that not-to-be-forgotten night. We loved one another between the battles. From column to column, marching by, we waved. There were letters, poste restante in the taken cities, awaiting my enemies in hiding, poorly housed. I heard her light tread. 
she brought food and news. Quickly, at the railway station, we agreed how we should continue our operations. With the dust of the road still on my lips, I kissed her. Around us, everything changed. Our affections did not change. A good number of German writers and artists who left Hitler's Germany in 1933 took refuge in the motherland of reason and of the workers, as Brecht called Stalin's USSR, in 1932. Before long, they discovered that they'd swapped one monster for another. Many were arrested, they vanished into the camps or were shot during the show trials of 1936 Still, he was wary. From their house on the shore, they could see the German gunboats on patrol. The enemy was very close, and none among the German exiles would suppose that Hitler, having come to power, would be content with managing only the fatherland. In the course of 1938, after the Anschluss with Austria and the gradual annexation of Czechoslovakia, it became obvious to Brecht and his circle that they would have to move on. At the outbreak of the war, by which time they were in Sweden, Brecht addressed this sonnet to Margarete Steffin. The love and comradeship in it are palpable, but most moving is perhaps the insistence that the way is more important than the goal. One arriving at the goal without the other will not be an arrival at all. He wills her to live in defiance of her fatal illness. He calls on her, the poem's muse, to tell her what he has told her. But not even his will joining forces with hers could preserve her. And now it's war, and now our way is tougher. You fellow wayfarer, my given comrade, on level ways or steep, narrow or wide, teacher and taught, both being both together, and both in flight now with a common goal, know what I know, that this goal's not more than the way itself, so should one of us fall, and the other let her, let him, only setting store on the goal itself, the goal would disappear, become unrecognisable, nowhere known, and breathless at the end, the one arriving there would stand in sweat and a grey nothingness. Here where we are now, at this milestone, I ask the poem's muse to tell you this. Brecht saw his highly civilised and immensely gifted nation march within a few years into unimaginable barbarism. Settling in the ruins of Berlin in the east, though publicly loyal to the government of the new GDR, he knew full well its faults and failures. In the last year of his life, he read the denunciation of Stalin's crimes delivered by Nikita Khrushchev at the Soviet Communist Party's 20th Party Congress. And around then, 
he wrote this short poem in which he seems close to conceding that his efforts to free people from delusion have failed. And I always thought the very simplest words would be enough. If I say what is, every heart will surely be lacerated. But you will go under if you don't fight back. Surely you must see that. The sum total of disappointment in Brecht's life was vast. It would not be surprising if towards the end, after so many grievous losses and amidst the revelations of unspeakable atrocity, he wondered what difference he, a writer, had made. But a life is not to be assessed by what is felt or said at the end of it. The end is just the end, not a summing up. That is true of any life. Every life should be looked at, as understandingly as possible, as a living simultaneity. Mere chronology is a poor thing. And a life like Brecht's, dedicated against appalling evil to the enlightenment of the minds and the improvement of the circumstances of his fellow citizens, lives and works still in the totality of those efforts and of their failures and successes. He leaves us equipped to fight. His poetry is, as Seferis said poetry should be, strong enough to help. So here to finish are three poems written in the dark times that have it in them to help. The Ballad of the Water Wheel. One. All great men, the poets teach us, in their tales on starlit nights, though they soar aloft like meteors, Plummet down like meteorites. That's a comfort, sure, and well worth knowing. But for us who toil to keep the great men going, there's so precious little to be played for. Rise or fall, they both needs must be paid for. And the water wheel just goes on turning. Fortunes come and go, you know the deal. While the water down below must keep on churning, its only business is to drive the wheel. Two. Oh, we've had so many masters. We've had tigers and hyenas. We've had heroes. We've had bastards. They all took us to the cleaners. <laughs> Soon the whole damn business starts to pull. Once you've felt one boot, you've felt them all. We're the ones they like to kick. You see, we don't want different masters, but to be free. And the water wheel just goes on turning. Fortunes come and go, you know the deal. While the water down below must keep on churning, its only business is to drive the wheel. Three. And they brawl and beat each other's brains out, scrapping for the booty. Gladly they denounce their brothers, swear it's just their simple duty. Endless feuds are to our master's liking. Only one thing gets them more excited. If we dare to hint, we might try striking. Suddenly. They're all of them united. Then the water wheel will cease its turning and the endless play begins to stall when at last the water gives up merely yearning and instead begins to take control. Another comrade, Brecht's long-suffering wife, the redoubtable actress Helena Weigel, 
went with him into exile and stayed with him throughout. She was an important inspiration for his epic theatre. Here, Brecht sees her in the title role of the play Senora Carrara's Rifles. A fisherwoman and mother in rural Andalusia in 1937, at the start of the Spanish Civil War against General Franco's fascism. The actress in exile for Helena Weigel. Now she puts on her makeup in the white cell. She sits bowed on the simple stool. With light movements, she applies the makeup in the mirror. Carefully, she washes away from her face all that is particular. The gentlest sensation will transform it. From time to time, she lets her frail and noble shoulders fall forwards like those who have to work hard. She already has on the rough blouse with patches at the sleeves. The based shoes stand on the makeup table. When she's ready, she asks eagerly if the drum has arrived on which the thunder of guns will be made and whether the great net is in place. Then she stands, a small figure, great warrior, to put on the base shoes and represent the struggle of the Andalusian fisherman's wife against the generals. Oh, watering the garden to bring on the green, give water to the trees, the thirsty trees, give Forget the shrubs, even those that bear no berries and the jaded. Don't overlook between the flowers, the weeds, they are thirsty. No, yet sprinkle only the fresh lawn or the parched. So refresh that too, refresh that too, refresh that Thank you.